The price of gasoline in the wholesale market has fallen by about 10% over the last few weeks. But the price of the pump hasn't budged a penny. Companies are pocketing the difference as profit. Sure they are. Capitalism, baby. Or profiteering. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. What's the difference, really? I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast. That's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites, not to mention many other fine affiliates who I just can't seem to find time to mention. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, We will get to that capitalism slash profiteering uh, business in a moment with my guest. But first, hey, get your booster shots. We are getting ours fr- this Friday, I think, right? Yes, yes. And hi, Des. Hello. And I am not looking forward to it, uh, <laughs> particularly given the rough day or two you will recall. I had after taking my second COVID shot back in May. Yes. Was that May? Yes. Uh, though I got to tell you, I am looking more forward to getting my booster than I am to a- getting actual COVID <laughs> of any variety right now. Putting it into perspective, as it were. Correct. Uh, The number of Americans fully vaccinated against COVID-19 reached 200 million on Wednesday. Yay us, a milestone for the nation amid a dispiriting holiday season spike in cases and hospitalizations. New cases in the U.S. climbed from an average of 95,000 a day on November 22 to almost 119,000 a day this week. So 95,000 just before Thanksgiving, 119,000 per day about one week later. And hospitalizations are now up 25% from one month ago. 
The increases are due almost entirely to the Delta variant, though the Omicron mutation has been detected in about 20 states now and is sure to spread even more. I think when we, uh, Desi Doyen, when we last talked about Omicron, I think just two days ago, it was only in 13 states. Now we're up to 20. Yes, it is here. It is spreading. Get your vaccination or get your booster. Deaths are now running close to 1,600 a day Mm -hmm. on average, according to the latest data. Again, two days ago, it was under 1,000. Now we're up to 1,600 a day. Back up to where they were in October in the overall U.S. death toll. Less than two years into the crisis could now hit another heartbreaking official milestone of 800,000 in a matter of days. Lauren Gostin, director of the WHO Collaborating Center on Public Health Law and Human Rights at Georgetown University, likened the virus now to a wildfire. He said uh, you can clear a forest of the shrubbery. But if you leave some shrubs and trees standing, the fire will find them. The virus will find you, he says. It is searching for hosts that are not immune. The fact that you live in New England or New York, where vaccination rates are among the highest in the nation, does not insulate you, he notes. The virus is now preying on those who have not gotten their shots as of Tuesday. 90% of the COVID-19 patients in intensive care were unvaccinated. And as I noted a show or two ago, uh, the the numbers, the, 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 the overwhelming numbers of folks who are in intensive care are folks who are not only not vaccinated, but who are in heavily leaning Trump countries, Trump counties. More than 400 people were in the hospital with COVID-19 in New Hampshire at the start of the week. That broke a record set last winter. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu directed hospitals to set up COVID-19 surge centers using space normally reserved for such things as outpatient care. So that outpatient care for now uh, will be uh, put off, presumably. Maine, likewise, is struggling with record-breaking COVID-19 hospitalizations. Governor Janet Mills on Wednesday activated as many as 75 members of the National Guard to try and help out. Elsewhere around the country, Indiana has seen COVID-19 hospital admissions double in the last month and is approaching levels not seen since this time a year ago before vaccines were widely available. The number of people in intensive care in Minnesota has now reached the highest level yet during the pandemic, with 98 percent of ICU beds currently occupied. Teams of military medics have been sent into Michigan and New Mexico. Meanwhile, demand for the vaccine with recent approval of boosters for all adults and shots for elementary school children has been very high amid the surge and the emergence of the Omicron variant, whose dangers are still not fully understood. On Wednesday, Pfizer said that the initial two shots of its vaccine appear significantly less effective against Omicron, but that a booster dose may offer important protection. Pfizer and its partner BioNTech said that while two doses may not be strong enough to prevent infection, lab tests showed a booster increased by 25-fold 
Desi, 25-fold people's levels of antibodies capable of fighting off Omicron. Oh, that is good news. For people who haven't yet had a booster, the company said two doses still should prevent severe disease or death. But hey, if you'd like 25-fold better protection, consider getting a booster. Uh, They found that protection against Omicron Omicron goes down a lot if you've only had two doses, but with three doses, the protection is substantially higher. As they note, and it should be noted, this is from a company press release, not from the actual data of a peer-reviewed study, uh, but they note, quote, according to the company's preliminary data, a third dose provides a similar level of neutralizing antibodies to Omicron as is observed after two doses against wild type and other variants that have emerged before Omicron. Now, of course, Pfizer would want to call for a third dose of their vaccine. True. They make it. They stand a profit, right? Well, that is true. But the results of their study is not the only one that has been made public over the past 24 hours suggesting the very same thing. Both studies, both of these other two studies, one out of South Africa, one is out of uh, Sweden, uh, they both find that two shots work well against the Delta and other variants, but do not fare as well against Omicron. The uh, small lab study in South Africa also concluded overnight that uh, people may be more susceptible to breakthrough Omicron infections after just two Pfizer doses. Scientists from the Africa Health Research Institute in Durban found a sharp drop in antibody strength against Omicron as compared to other variants, although they did not test boosters uh, in in this test or either of these, the one in South Africa or in Sweden. Pfizer boosters are not yet available in South Africa, but the preliminary South African results suggested that people vaccinated with two shots after also having an earlier bout of COVID-19 actually retained more protection than those who only got two shots. As expected, uh, Josh Marshall reports protective antibody immunity declines a lot against Omicron. A lot. He notes that has been expected, but what jumps out here is that two shots of an mRNA vaccine, like Pfizer or Moderna, uh, did not hold up very well at all against Omicron, but two shots plus infection was substantially more robust. Uh, These two small lab studies, however, did not look at booster shots as the Pfizer study did. These studies found uh, that the best protection seems to come from two mRNA shots plus infection. But a lot or most of the expert uh, analyses here of this data seems to assume that this wasn't so much two shots and infection as three cumulative exposures. In other words, most see this as a sign that boosters will either be equivalent to two shots and infection or in the same ballpark in terms of protection, which is exactly what the Pfizer study, uh, which did look at booster shots, seems to also uh, confirm. So if you read those other two studies from uh, Sweden and South Africa, 
and you see that, oh, I would have much better protection if I had two shots and uh, had COVID, don't run out and get COVID. <laughs> no, don't. Run out and get a booster instead. It, exactly. It's pretty it's, much the same thing. It's free and it doesn't run the risk of harming anybody else that you might infect and uh, doesn't run the risk of you getting, for example, long COVID or dying. So, so Correct. And, uh, you know, unless you really want to go out and get COVID, which I don't recommend, uh, getting a booster right now is key to upping your antibody defenses to take on Omicron and, frankly, against all of the disease in all the known forms at this time. Now, uh, in fact, while some might consider the booster to be sort of a, a re-upping of the waning antibodies after the first two shots several months ago, you know, topping off your tank again, in fact... Uh, the data from a whole bunch of studies in recent months suggests that a booster shot does not just top you off and get you back to your previous levels of protection. It actually offers far greater protection than the original two shots did on their own. Now, that, uh, according to some experts, may be due to the fact that more time between the first shot and a much later shot, in this case a booster, might have been the right idea in the first place, rather than having two shots three or four weeks apart. Uh, why did that happen then in the first place? Why weren't we told this in the first place? Well, it, apparently it's largely because when the vaccines were being developed, there was a huge hurry to test them thoroughly in studies and get them to market as soon as possible because people were dropping dead by tens and hundreds of thousands each day at the time. So while the companies Pfizer and Moderna tested their two mRNA vaccine shots separated by three or four weeks in their studies, if they had tried to test it, uh, you know, to test if more immunity was offered by waiting longer for the second dose, like three or four months, well, that would have added three or four months at least to the testing time for these studies before these vaccines could, you know, then apply for government approval uh, for use in taking on the pandemic, as they have so well for just about everybody who has been able to or smart enough to get protected by them. So rather than delaying three or four months um, and costing all of those lives. Correct. They just went with the three or four weeks between the first two shots. But as it turns out, it might have been better to wait a few months to get the second part of the dosing. Uh, or in this case, the booster. So the punchline here so far uh, remains the same with now three new Omicron related studies over the past 24 hours, albeit small ones in a lab, not fully uh, peer reviewed yet. But the punchline is the same. Get your booster shots. All right. Yep. OK, let's take a quick break here and uh, and then a lurching turn to a completely different if pandemic related topic, pandemic inflation profiteering, the crappy job the corporate media has done in reporting on it. And what, if anything, the Biden administration can or is doing about it for that? I can think of no one better to turn to than our old friend David Dayan of the American Prospect. He joins us next. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. 
and thanks. And the money kept rolling in from every side. Yep. It is rolling on in. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com rolling in from every side. We have been reporting uh, quite a bit on this program about how corporate media have been misreporting, misleading on issues like inflation as the world the world wrestles with a gnarled up supply chain while it tries to work its way out from under a now two-year-long pandemic with U.S. media citing things like inflation, a worldwide issue, as a knock against Joe Biden, while at the same time ignoring, frankly, a host of really, really impressive economic numbers for the U.S. in almost every regard. Unemployment dropping a full two percentage points. Uh, over the past year, which has never happened in the first year of an American presidency, uh, falling to numbers that are now pretty much back to pre-pandemic levels about four years earlier than analysts had initially expected. New weekly jobless claims recently coming in at levels not seen since 1969. More new jobs added in a single year under Joe Biden than we saw during the entire presidency of Donald Trump. Record high numbers on Wall Street, if you consider that to be a sign of a healthy economy. There are many signs that the economy, even as it struggles with a number of persistent glitches from a supply chain thrown off its axis during the pandemic, is actually quite robust and moving in the right direction. Yet the media continue leading with misleading numbers on things like inflation and new jobs numbers. For example, the monthly report last week that only 210,000 jobs were added in November, which during the Trump administration, such numbers were trumpeted as great successes like no one has ever seen. But under Biden, they were disappointing numbers, completely ignoring the fact that unemployment from that same report had fallen from 4.6 percent to 4.2 percent in just one month. And that those new job numbers every single month this year have been subsequently revised a month or so later, often doubling the original estimates to sometimes record gains that are hardly even mentioned by corporate media when those revisions occur. A month or so later that after many media outlets in October reported on a 0.09 percent increase in prices that month, as if it had risen 6.2 percent in one single month when what they were actually poorly reporting on was a 6.2 increase in prices over the past year. No, not over one month. Not great, but not nearly as bad as the 6.2% rise in a single month that they made it seem. And it didn't even take into account that wages had also risen almost as much over the past year, canceling out much of the pain for many working families in the bargain. All of this as Joe Biden's approval ratings are pummeled for the few negative points, misreported or otherwise, that media can find to lead their stories with. And then there's this aspect of the inflation matter, which seems to have so many in the corporate media freaked out inflation 
but this part of it is not getting nearly the amount of coverage that it should from our friend David Dayen at The Prospect last week. He writes, in a time of high inflation, you hear a lot about companies passing costs onto customers. In order for companies to maintain their God-given right to earn a profit, they must raise prices to offset the cost of producing goods and getting them into people's hands. And thanks mostly to the hidden risk exposed by the pandemic of neoliberal gospels like just-in-time logistics and deregulation and offshoring, prices really are going up, he notes. But there's something else, he says, mixed in with this latest bout of inflation. Companies aren't just passing costs onto us, with corporations using inflation as a cover for raising their prices. You and I are passing profits onto companies. As The Wall Street Journal recently reported, executives are seizing a once in a generation opportunity to raise prices noting that around two-thirds of the largest publicly traded companies are showing profit margins higher today than they did in 2019, before the pandemic. Over 100 of those companies show profit margins of 50% or more above those 2019 levels. That does not sound like inflation. That sounds like profiteering. As Dayan observes, inflation is being enhanced by exploitation. Profiteers are using the frenzy around higher prices as an excuse to reel in much more than increased costs. Now, I'm old enough to remember when that sort of thing, profiteering, used to be kind of illegal or at least frowned upon by the federal government. So is there anything that Joe Biden and the federal government can actually do about it now, given some of those Gospels Day insights like deregulation and offshoring, etc.? Joining us to answer some of those questions and more is David Dayan, investigative financial journalist and the executive editor of The American Prospect. His newest book, where you may find a reference or two to me, for the record, is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power, uh, which I actually think may help tell part of the story here that I hope to discuss with him today. And I'm happy to note David is now the winner of the 2021 Sidney Hillman Prize for Magazine Journalism for his unsanitized newsletter, which, especially during the darkest days of the pandemic, served as an indispensable daily resource, a report of news and analysis chronicling the terrifying rise and damage of the coronavirus. David Day, and welcome back, my friend. Well, thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. It has been a while since we had you on the show uh, for some reason. So first, congrats on the very well-deserved Hillman Prize, David. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I want uh, to get to your article on fighting the inflation profiteers, but there's a couple of stories uh, over the past day or three uh, somewhat related that I'd love to get your uh, quick take on, your hot take, if you <laughs> will, first, if that's okay. The, uh, the Biden administration is announcing that the nomination of Soleil Omarava to lead the office of the Comptroller of the Currency will now be withdrawn as her candidacy faced uh, steep resistance in the Senate from Republican lawmakers criticizing her uh, criticizing her, her uh, vision for bank regulation, but mostly, as far as I can tell, at least publicly, due to her birthplace in the former Soviet Union, suggesting she's a communist or something? What what happened there, and, and how big of a deal is the comptroller of the currency? Uh, how, how much is that a, a setback for the administration? 
Well, the comptroller is a big deal. It's it's the national bank regulator. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's one of the most important bank regulatory positions in the entire government. Uh, yes, Republicans were using this kind of red baiting tactic uh, to uh, in in a really ugly way. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, I, I wouldn't say that that's the reason that uh, Amarova was ultimately forced to withdraw, because as we know, uh, you only need fifty votes to pass. Uh, a nomination mm-hmm. through the Senate, and uh, if every Republican was opposed, you could still get a nominee through. Mm-hmm. So the the reason for this was uh, some Wall Street Democrats, Mark Warner and John Tester, uh, and some others who opposed Amarova because she would have been uh, a really strong and aggressive regulator. Mm. Um, on the surface, they said that they didn't like her criticism of the bank deregulation bill that they passed during the Trump administration uh, <laughs> with Warner and Tester and, and some others co-wrote. And uh, it turns out that everything Amarova said about that was absolutely proven true. It led to more bank consolidation. It uh, led to the loss of a lot of community banks. Mm. Uh, it led to weakening regulation on a whole host of big banks uh, under the cover of being a community bank-based uh, uh, measure, and they didn't like her actually saying that in public and embarrassing them. Mm. Uh, so that was number one. And number two is that she, uh, her, you know, the writing of hers that got most attention was around sort of this musing about using uh, the Federal Reserve to give a bank account to every American, which, by the way, would be a very good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, what, what I think the banking industry was really concerned about was that she knew where the bodies were buried. She did a number of Mm. really good research papers into how the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, gave uh, kind of allowances to banks to engage in high-risk derivative trading, for example. Mm. They didn't want to stop that party. Mm. And so they got their minions in the Senate to block her nomination. Mm. And uh, whether they did it under the cover of red baiting or whether they did it under the cover of being really upset that she didn't like their deregulation law uh, uh, ultimately the real reason here is that she would have actually regulated the banks and we can't have that no we can't have that so uh corporate dems essentially uh scotching this uh, but able to use the, uh, the the cover of the Republican red baiting, which, you know, when someone is sort of escapes from the Soviet Union and uh, comes here as a child and, and, and essentially becomes a capitalist, you'd think that would be something they would applaud rather it's worse than, than using the cover. It's it's it's, you know, justifying it. It's it's, it's justifying that tactic mm-hmm. and, and saying that, yeah, that can be successful. Yeah. Even though they had other reasons they wanted to get rid of Amarova. Yeah. Uh, now what it looks like to everyone is, oh yeah, you defame someone as a communist sympathizer like it's 1956. Right. And uh, you can you can be successful politically. And so thanks a lot, Mark Warner, and thanks a lot, John Tester. There you go. Now moving to the uh, corporate media reporting on the economy, as I was noting at the top there, this reporting has been, at least as I see it, really bad. And misleading, uh, and in turn, uh, of course, causing a hit to Biden's approval numbers, uh, even as uh, Dana Milbank, I don't know if you saw this, over uh, Washington Post this week, uh, reported a new study finding that the corporate media has been even tougher on Joe Biden in his first year. 
in many ways than they were on Donald Trump in his last and arguably worst year in office. So I'm wondering, A, do you concur with that? And if so, as we've been asking on this show, what is going on here? Why are the media compelled to do that as you see it? Well, I think there's been kind of a snowball effect with Biden. Uh, Biden came in wanting, uh, really having one goal, which is to end the pandemic, mm-hmm. and uh, that was perhaps a too <laughs> ambitious a thing to put on one person's shoulders, mm-hmm. uh, especially given the ability to mutate uh, for the virus. But uh, he didn't do it, and um, he's he's paying the price now politically. I, I do not believe that the media has done a particularly good job as as it relates to Joe Biden, but I'm not sure that they've done a good job as it relates to any president in the last, uh, I don't know, 30, 50 years, mm-hmm. something like that. So um, uh, it's certainly not surprising, and it's something that, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, if, if, if you're the Democratic Party, you, you don't get to choose your media. This is, this is, this is what they're about, and uh, there's, there's definitely a sense that, uh, you know, you, a, a media has to be oppositional, it, it needs to uh, uh, be, you know, sort of, and, and you've done media criticism like this forever, mm-hmm. so you know this as well as anyone, uh, they have to sort of do a, on the one hand, on the other hand kind of analysis. Uh, and uh, if if someone is uh, in in the White House, they're going to try to kick them off that pedestal. So um, you know that's just something I think that that parties have to live with, and and it's it's it doesn't mean necessarily that someone becomes unpopular as a result. Uh, I would say the greater reason than the media for the unpopularity of the Democratic Party is a the pandemic and b the fact that if you're just uh, uh, someone who clues into politics every so often, you'd think the president was Joe Manchin because the only person that you see talking yeah. about democratic ideas and not in a good way is Joe Manchin. Yeah. Because all we've been doing for the last six months is argue about the Build Back Better Act. Yeah. And he ain't helping, that's for sure. Okay, as to your article on uh, inflation profiteering at, at the prospect, David Dane, uh-huh. you write, the good capitalists will say that as long as the consumer doesn't object, companies have every right to maximize profits, and anyway, a company that wants to steal market share can always come in and undercut prices. Well, all right, that sounds about right uh under capitalism these companies do have a right uh do they not to charge whatever the market will bear and at the same time can't other companies simply come in and and take market share by undercutting them if if and when they do yeah i mean they absolutely do and uh have the ability to uh raise prices uh, as long as uh they don't lose consumers the problem is that uh we have a a business climate today where People have locked in their their customer base. Um, you know, Warren Buffett talks about it as building a moat around your business. In other words, uh, your your customers are all with you, and they can't escape because they'd be fed to the alligators. Th- this is what we have in in this country uh, because we have a series of consolidated mm-hmm. companies that uh, have a, a, a stranglehold on market share. And we don't even know that it's happening. We have uh, you stroll down a grocery aisle, and you see hundreds of items, but you don't know that the same handful of companies mm-hmm. have created all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's kind of no way for small businesses 
cases. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have a consumer base which is kind of locked in. And that's why you, you have companies, large companies like Procter & Gamble and Unilever, saying that, that you know, that we're, we, we know that we can raise prices on people, we can do it gradually, we can do it uh, over the course of, of uh, a number of months, if not years. Don't have to worry about any kind of material reaction. So uh, the, these uh, companies have become so large, essentially, and and people don't know it. And this is what you write about, of course, in Monopolized: Life in the Age of Corporate Power. These companies that are so huge and sell so many different products, and, and often don't even have their name on them, at least in a way that you know you are buying from them, that they can actually raise their prices and if you want to go buy a different version of the product you may be buying from the very same company without realizing it and also paying a higher price is that about right right and and then you have the other end of this which is that if you're a company that says you know what we're going to make it up on volume we're not going to raise prices we're mm-hmm. going to you know give the customer a discount and a better deal and we think that we'll we'll be able to make it up by more customers flocking to us mm-hmm. what you get then is Wall Street investors very angry at you yes. because Target actually announced that they would, uh-huh. uh, you know, keep prices pretty much uh, level, and their stock price fell dramatically. Wow! And so you 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 almost have yes, you have uh, these small fiefdoms of of, of large businesses that uh, you know, control various markets, but even on top of that, you have sort of an investor class superstructure that says what you need to, you know, they dictate what you need to do in a particular situation. What they want you to do is raise prices. Yeah, and this was after Target had a really good year during the pandemic. Right. Uh, and so they said, we don't need to raise prices. And, and then they were punished uh, by Wall Street for saying that. Right. Now, if, if these large companies, uh, you report, raise prices in concert, there's no competitor with the shelf space or profile to change that dynamic, putting consumers at the mercy of profiteering giants. But if they raise prices in concert, David, isn't that what when you know we used to enforce consumer protection laws and stuff in this country? Isn't that what we used to call unlawful collusion and price fixing? It is price fixing, but we, we don't spend a whole lot of time on that anymore uh, in, in America. It's still unlawful, uh, right? It's still on the books. It's still unlawful. It's still uh, occasionally uh, prosecuted. Uh, and now we do have a, a, a different regime at places like the Federal Trade Commission and even the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department mm-hmm. where you might start to see more investigations. In fact, the FTC is investigating uh, supply chain issues Right now, they initiated that uh, just a week or two ago. And, you know, I think that this is where the administration needs to move. In this piece, I refer to something that uh, John F. Kennedy did Mm -hmm. in the 1960s when uh, he wanted to stop inflation among steel companies, and he thought he had made a deal to uh, get better wages for steel workers while ensuring that prices wouldn't rise Mm -hmm. as a result. And U.S. Steel broke that promise, and they, they raised their prices. And then all the other steel companies followed suit. So and so Kennedy went on a primetime address, yeah. and uh, all the television networks carried it. And he said that this is, this is what the steel industry is doing, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote from it. He said, the American people will find it hard, as I do, 
to accept the situation in which a tiny handful of steel executives whose pursuit of private power and profit exceeds their sense of public responsibility can show such utter contempt for the interests of 185 million Americans. Now, that speech alone probably would have done nothing. But what Kennedy did to supplement that is that he announced an antitrust investigation into mm-hmm. price fixing among the steel industry. He got the FBI to investigate the, the steel industry, and he changed the procurement of the Defense Department, uh, which obviously needs a lot of steel. And he said, you know, from this point forward, the Defense Department is only going to work with companies that don't raise their, their prices on mm-hmm. the steel. And that changed the posture of the steel industry within a week. Mm, (laughs) Within four days, they all had rolled back these price increases. Now, what happened after that is that Kennedy kind of relented. He said, you know, I got the job done. He didn't do anything else. And then very gradually over the course of the next 18 months or so, uh, U.S. Steel went back and and, and raised their prices. Mm. And where we are now, 60 years later, is in a place where corporations have much more power uh, than they did in the 1960s, when they still, even then, they got away with it. But I think that it's time to turn the tide on that. And it's not so much the rhetorical flourish, even though that would be fine, that, that Kennedy made at that time. It was the actions that he took. And you could see these actions taken at the Justice Department, at uh, the Federal Trade Commission, mm-hmm. uh, blocking mergers that would increase prices or, or, or substantially limit competition. We just saw the FTC uh, sue to block a merger in the semiconductor space. Semiconductors is mm-hmm. one of the areas where we're seeing the biggest shortages. Uh, the Justice Department sued to block a merger in the sugar industry, which would raise prices on all foods because so many of our foods have sugar in them. Mm-hmm. And you could keep seeing this investigated because all of the material that you would need for a price-fixing investigation is publicly available. It's in these earning calls. And and that's what I want to ask you about, David, because this is just kind of mind-blowing. You know, in the old days, at least as I understand it, when you had this collusion and the price-fixing between companies, it was sort of done in secret by these companies. But this now seems you report that, you know, the CEOs are going on these earnings calls and they're simply announcing their plans to do this, which means that all of the other companies can also hear those announcements and increase their prices in kind. Well, I guess two questions come of this. A, does it make it legal because they're, you know, not doing it in secret behind closed doors? They're doing it publicly. And B, this sort of seems to be a... A feature, not a bug, of the uh, of of the modern corporations here. Yeah. They're not accidentally uh, mentioning this. They're doing it on purpose. It's as if they feel that the government can't do anything about it. So we're just going to come right out and say it, and we don't even expect any any blowback at all from regulators. Yeah, absolutely. There's another part of this, which is that the typical price fixing investigation, they're looking for three men in a room. Right. Mm-hmm. They're right. looking for the three men who get together and, and they have secret emails or they have secret, uh, 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 you know, audio of the conversation that mm-hmm. says, we're going to uh, lower the price for this good uh, or raise the price and we're going to do it all together and, and nobody has to worry about it. Right. Well, now you don't have three men in the room. You have, uh, you have a bunch of CEOs 
saying what they're going to do, and it's immediately broadcast to every other CEO in that market, yeah. and they, they, they can look at those prices. I mean, in some industries, like airline tickets mm-hmm. and, and agriculture as well, there are very sophisticated systems that track the changes in prices so that everyone can move their prices in concert. Yeah. Now, is that technology just sort of automatic price fixing, or is it just a, a labor-saving device? Well, this, these are the questions that have to be answered. In fact, the Justice Department did a very long investigation into collusion in the airline industry uh, around prices like that, mm-hmm. and it, this was under Trump. They, they dumped it without doing anything. So you could absolutely make the case that there is collusion going on, but, but it's not being done in sort of a formal way, but it's in being done in a more informal way. Yeah. It would, might, might be harder to prosecute in that sense, but uh, I think the effort would be well worth it. Well, it would be worth it, but I think it's telling that these companies seem to have absolutely no concern uh, oh, yeah, about it. They are they, not they afraid. They think that these things go unenforced all the time, and they will continue to go unenforced, and and why shouldn't they? Yeah. I mean, because it hasn't been enforced it's for decades. Absolutely true. Yeah. You know, the the fact that large retailers are essentially it, when we have these supply shocks, which are real, by mm-hmm. the way, I should say that yeah. there really are supply chain issues that are causing a rise in input costs. Now, the the roots of those supply chain issues also go back to monopolization, deregulation offshoring to China so mm-hmm. that everything has to come from one place and that's how you create bottlenecks. Uh, all of the sort of neoliberal kind of ideas mm-hmm. of the last 40 years is what brought us to introduce hidden risk into the supply chain, which, which exploded spectacularly during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, so all of those things should be on trial as well, and we need to fix all of those things too. But just because there are very real problems with the supply chain that is raising costs, you know, that doesn't mean that there isn't also other more synthetic problems that you absolutely have to address. What we're seeing right now is that large retailers are demanding that the suppliers that they work with service them first. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. forget about the corner store. You get us the supply that we need or we'll drop you. And that's illegal. That's illegal under a law called the Robinson-Patman Act, which is still on the books, but is pretty much unenforced today. And we just see it as normal that you go to a Target and it's all stocked, and you go to a Walmart and it's all stocked up, and you go to a a smaller store, an independent store, and they, they don't have the things that you need. And it's a function of this very distorted picture of U.S. business. And I think I could almost hear the air quotes around the word uh, illegal when you said that that is illegal. It used to be. And and you note, uh, for example, the hedge fund uh, fueled container ship cartel whose net profits actually grew nine times the rate that they did a year ago. There really are bottlenecks in the supply chain, but along with it, you've got uh, freight, uh, rail cost-cutting, trucking deregulation, and so where they've got yeah. these real problems, you have all of the other industries around them saying, well, as long as we're having these problems, let's go ahead and, and raise prices right. anyway. So what you have yeah. is you have a supply chain, and at every level in that chain, people are extracting profits. 
So yep. companies that dominate that chain. Whether their whether costs are go- going up or not. Right. Yeah. Whether it's shipping, yeah. whether it's, it's trucking, whether it's uh, freight rail, uh, whether it's warehouses. And then at the end of the line, when it gets to the retailer, they're adding a little bit on yeah. top, too. Everybody. So <laughs> the, the end result for the consumer is a, a cost that does not reflect the cost that it took to uh, get that good from wherever it was produced into their own hands. Let me ask you very quickly here before we got to go, uh, David, uh, about this uh, one point that uh, of action that the administration seems to be sort of taking that, that you didn't mention. Uh, uh, Joe Biden sent a letter about a week or so ago, I think, to the Federal Trade Commission to request an investigation of what appears to be collusion between the big oil companies to raise gas prices, even while the prices coming out of oil refineries was actually dropping at the same time. That sure sounds like price fixing to me, but what do I know? Here, here are some of the remarks uh, about that from the president just before Thanksgiving, and then I'll ask you about it. The price of gasoline in the wholesale market has fallen by about 10% over the last few weeks. But the price of the pump hasn't budged a penny. In other words, gas supply companies are paying less and making a lot more. And they do not seem to be passing that on to the consumers at the pump. In fact, if the gap between wholesale and retail gas prices was in line with past averages, Americans would be paying at least 25 cents less per gallon right now, as I speak. Instead, companies are pocketing the difference as profit. So that's somewhat along the lines of what JFK tried to do, call some of these uh, uh, industries out. Now, Biden's FTC chief is said to be sort of an antitrust warrior, as I understand it, but... A request to the FTC to investigate, that sounds more like a long-term thing than anything that might make a difference right now when it actually matters. No, does, presuming the FTC takes up this probe, you know, what sort of authority do they ultimately have here? Do they issue fines? Can they break up these companies? And do you foresee it having any actual effect in, in, the, in the near term? Unclear what the effect is going to be. We actually have a piece on this. Uh, today up at, at the prospect by one of our interns, Connor Bulgren, mm-hmm. who talks about this back and forth and, and, and what it would take. I, I mean, what we should say is that in the, the couple weeks since Biden made those comments, gas prices have dropped a little bit, probably about 5 to 10 percent. So maybe the bully pulpit worked in that sense. Uh, actually, I think what the real issue was is that long-term weather forecast showed a warmer winter, which meant less demand uh, mm-hmm. for home heating oil, and mm-hmm. that has dropped uh, the, both the price of crude and uh, the overall gas prices as well. See, I told you climate change was a great thing. Told you. Yeah, um, you're right. You're the, right. Uh, the, the other thing, though, that we do know, and this gets, sort of gets back to what we've been talking about, is that in the third quarter of 2020, Chevron posted a $6.1 billion profit. Yes. ExxonMobil posted a $6.8 billion profit. <laughs> Both of these broke records yeah. for quarterly earnings. And so they're definitely, I mean, uh, and that's just, that's just them. That's, just, that's not even necessarily what is, is causing all of this price mismatch. It could be the gas stations. It could be the refiners. It could be the mm-hmm. producers. But, but it gets back to this fundamental point, which is that we're seeing uh, allegedly these rising costs on businesses to bring goods over to market 
but we're at the same time seeing record profits from those same companies. So you can't make the argument that you, you have all these additional costs if you're, you're doing far more than passing on those costs right. to customers. And so it's worth keeping the pressure on, whether it's from Lena Khan at the FTC, whether it's from the Justice Department, whether it's just rhetorically from the White House. It's worth keeping this pressure on. And do you have any optimism that this administration actually is going to keep that pressure on? You note that you know you can't rely on uh, grumpy business reporters and activists to yell about profiteering, and you are nothing if not a grumpy business reporter. <laughs> so uh, do you sense the administration is going to keep uh, moving in this direction? Well, I, I do. I would say that uh, some of the... Uh, people, personnel that, that Biden has put in place that are most equipped to work on this problem mm-hmm. are do have a demonstrated record of very aggressive enforcement. So we're talking about Lena Khan, uh, who's at the Federal Trade Commission, mm-hmm. talking about Jonathan Cantor, who uh, is, uh, he was recently named the, uh, the head of the antitrust division of the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, there, there's certainly a faction within the White House that feels like this is a serious problem and that we have to do everything possible to uh, stamp it out. Whether or not that's successful, I mean, they're, they're, they're mm-hmm. swimming upstream, as it were, yeah. right? But I, I do think that, that we're going to see more and more discussion of this in the days and weeks. Well, that could be good news. And by the way, did I hear you uh, mention that it's a it's an intern at the American Prospect that is having a discussion about oil prices? Uh, well, when he, there, wrote, so? he, he wrote this previous... Uh, well, I know, but I, I, I mentioned that by way of saying how valuable the American Prospect is. Even oh, your you. interns are reporting on uh, more than the rest of the uh, <laughs> corporate media seems to have. By the way, have you seen... Are, are there other... Well, are there corporate media outlets that are covering these things, like these uh, these earnings calls, uh, this price fixing in in uh, you know the light of day? Or well, they're covering it, but they're covering it in a way of you know the business press has a way of covering these things that just sort of make it seem like it's just part of the great American story. Yeah, right? I mean, uh, yep. yeah, yes. The Wall Street Journal have they reported on these these earnings calls? Have they reported on on record profits? Yeah, but they think it's great. <laughs> right, <laughs> right? Exactly. They're, they're, they're writing it for investors. Yeah. They're writing it for uh, the people who benefit from uh, these these issues. It's a good news story to them. Uh, thank God for the American Prospect. You can find David Dayan as and his work at prospect.org. You can find them on the Twitters at The Prospect. And, of course, you can find David Dayan on the Twitters as well at D Dayan and... As long as it's the holiday season, might I note that uh, his book is Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power makes a great Christmas gift. Where you decide to buy it, I will leave to you. (laughs) Thank you, David. Really appreciate you joining us today. Always great speaking with you, my friend. All right. Thanks very much. You bet. Okay, we'll take a a quick break here. And, uh, yeah, buy it at Amazon. That's clearly... No, what? don't. Buy don't. it at IndieBound Books. What? Okay. Well, we'll see about that. Well, actually, I will give a link to uh, to buy that book. It would make a fine uh, gift for Christmas. And uh, if we take some time off over Christmas, you'll even have a reminder of me when you read it. Because I think <laughs> I'm on something like pages 
83 and 84 or something. I don't know. But you should read it anyway. Yeah, read it anyway. It's still good, even though I'm in it. All right. We're going to get out for a second. We'll come back with something else. Oh, I know what we'll come back with. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, there is a whole lot of legislation going on as we near the end of the year in Congress uh, as must-pass annual spending bills. Well, must-pass before the end of the year. (laughs) And Republicans, oh, Republicans have allowed Democrats to use a gimmick to avoid Republicans' own filibuster for raising the debt ceiling. Uh, On uh, Tuesday night, the House was allowed to pass a one-time-only bill that will then allow Democrats to fast-track raising the debt ceiling uh, with a simple majority vote over in the Senate that will not require any Republicans to have to vote on not defaulting on our national debt that was run up to the tune of trillions of dollars during the Trump administration when Republicans had no problem at all voting for all of that deficit spending and all of those tax cuts for corporations and for wealthy folks, etc. So hopefully we will you know, be avoiding what is now becoming the annual Christmas tradition of a uh, you know potential fall off the fiscal cliff as Republicans uh, pretend to be concerned about government spending, but only when there is a uh, Democrat in the White House. Well, naturally, of course, once again, Democrats are the party of responsible government and Republicans are running out the nation's credit card, not paying the bills, giving the rich all the money and then blaming Democrats for the deficits and debt, because God forbid we should actually have a public that understands how this stuff actually works. You're so partisan, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Why are you saying facts that are partisan? You know, uh, what is it that facts have a liberal facts, bias? Yes, and all they're that, that yes, old I thing. Know. Anyway, on Tuesday night, uh, I just want to note this: the House passed on Tuesday night overwhelmingly. They passed a 768 billion dollar defense policy bill that was actually 24 billion dollars more than the White House had even requested. And I want to note this since The New York Times does not make it particularly clear in their coverage. uh, And as David Dan had mentioned, the media coverage of of President Manchin and his (laughs) objections to the Build Back Better bill. Uh, which, by the way, that was originally proposed as a six and a half trillion dollar bill. It is now down to about one point seven five trillion dollars in order to appease Joe Manchin. It is fully paid for, unlike the one point two trillion dollar infrastructure bill that Manchin himself helped to negotiate with Republicans. Uh, for bipartisan passage. But for all the whining that Manchin and Republicans have done about spending all of this taxpayer money on the Build Back Better bill, oh my God, $1.75 trillion. 
in paid-for funds to expand health care and child care and education and parental leave and elder care and immigration and, yes, climate change action and much more. Well, for all the moaning and yelling and screaming about that, the House uh, just passed by an overwhelming lopsided 363 to 70 vote on Tuesday night. Most of those who voted against it, by the way, uh, were Democrats in the Progressive Caucus. Uh, the House just passed this $768 billion bill. That is almost a trillion dollars for defense spending. And here's the punchline now. That is for one single year. The Build Back Better bill is for spending over 10 years. It's, you know, $1.75 trillion if it stays there. Manchin is now saying that's still too much money to spend, even though it benefits every American pretty much over 10 years, and that's too much. Meanwhile, they just passed, without anybody thinking about it, a $1 trillion defense bill. No problem. No complaints. Not a peep about, you know, spending almost a trillion dollars for one single year of so-called defense related stuff that most of it we end up just blowing up, literally blowing up anyway. I would have blown it up personally for half that amount had they asked me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, you know, military gear for war. How much do you need? How much? Oh, forget that. We'll give you even more than that for one single year. But helping pretty much every single person in this country with health care and education and child care and fighting climate change over the next 10 years. Well, that's out of control federal spending. That's tax and spend liberal Democrats spending us into oblivion. Don't they know that we're broke? Just trying to add a little bit, little bit of perspective that uh, doesn't seem to make it through to the uh, to the corporate media and therefore to the American people these days. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to my guest, the American Prospects, David Day, and to my producer, as always, Desiree Doyen. Yep. Thank you, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program. Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And hey, if you got some uh, something extra jangling around in your pocket for year-end spending, please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your air, corporate-free, listener-supported only. Thank you. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad blog. I will see you at both of those places until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Don't take the money and run. Don't take the money.